Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. We've got rubber duckies. We've got amazing Amy kind of moments at press conferences. We've got cheeky times where uh, women are sneaking out of people's houses and girls are catching them. We have basically got it all in this chapter two of It Came From The Deep. Maria Lewis, hello. How are you? Hi. Hi, thanks. So nice to be back. And can I just say... Uh, I was about to tell you this off air and I was like, no, save it for the show. Content, content, content. (laughs) But I've been looking forward to this all week, all week, because when we did the intro and the prologue and, you know, I spoke to Courtney for chapter one and that interview was amazing and like super insightful. It's something that you and I have had a very clear vision for and we've been really excited to get out there because this kind of show doesn't exist, but in a vacuum. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, like, we've, we've, we have been on an island and you yeah. literally don't know what's going to happen once you announce that you're doing it. Totally. And you maybe learn more things from being wrong than you do being right. Fuck, 100%. it's good to be right because the fan <laughs> reaction <laughs> so far has been so nice. Thank it you has. so much to everybody who has inundated and I mean literally inundated um my Instagram Blake's Instagram our Twitter feeds I have subscribed to the show just like the feedback from it and the discussion about it is a hundred percent exactly why we wanted to do this and I don't care how earnest I sound I'm so fucking earnest about this (laughs) because it's like the fans are the people who made this book successful and the fans are the one who are like they, they're obviously really enjoying the show, which is the whole reason we're doing it. But also, I um, just finished Mariah Carey's memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, um, <laughs> for the fourth time. And <laughs> in it, she talks Wait, a lot. About, what, yes? The fourth time? Yes. It's been out for three days. <laughs> I know. I know. It's been out for like six minutes and you're in Victorian <laughs> lockdown. I didn't even know you could go out and get books. And you've read this thing nah, four bitch. times. It's called an ebook. e-book. It, I actually, to be fair, I just read the like, ebook twice and just I listened like it came, to the. Just, just like it came just from like the day. Just like it came from the day. To hashtag tie in. Um, and this is also a tie in because then I listened. So read the ebook twice and then I listened to the audiobook twice because the audiobook is unabridged. And she does like fun voices. She sings stuff. She oh, wait, has it's actually her. It's actually her. Yes. But Amazing. not like in a daggy William Shatner way. Cause you know how he read his memoir and everyone's like, lol, it's so hilarious. When Mariah does it, it's amazing. It's There's so only, you would actually love it. There's a lot of good deep hip hop culture stuff in there about Wu Tang Clan. I, I would be, I would definitely be keen to listen to her audiobook version. And I think, you know, now that we're kind of doing an audiobook uh, podcast and and after show, um, I do have to shout out a really fun audiobook, which um, is the dyslexic comedian Bert Kreischer. Um, read his own audiobook and is so bad at it that he messed it up, and they left a lot of the mess ups in there. And it's actually really really good fun. I think some clips on youtube if you want to just get a taste um but um yeah it's i'm 
wow, four times. I'm not surprised. I'm surprised that no, it's, I mean, it's, it's this quick, but yeah. also, you know, more power to you. If you knew how many interviews I've done about Mariah Carey's memoir, <laughs> the phone's been off the hook. Really? It's literally been, yes. I've done like two TV spots and I think three podcasts, like ABC, Channel 7, ABC again. Oh, man, they love a free interview. And um, SBS. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then there was also the, the Australian Lambs. They have like a podcast. So yeah. it's, 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 yeah, it's been a lot. But A, it's an amazing book, incredibly well written. I really respect somebody who, we all know celebrity memoirs are ghost written and she puts her ghost writer, or not a ghost writer, she puts the co-writer on the cover with her. Um, this incredible African-American woman who writes a lot about like race and feminism and hip hop and the intersection of those three things. So she puts her name not only on the cover, but uh, on the Instagram post on Mariah's Insta, she shares a photo of her and the co-writer. And I'm like, that's some classy shit. Like I truly haven't seen that maybe ever. I don't, anyway. I don't, um, I don't understand what the stigma is to have a talented journalist slash writer help you formulate a memoir, even if it's just structuring the questions to help tease out interviews, which then eventually get scribed and edited into what the memoir becomes. Because it just, especially when, you know, you're a time poor person or maybe you just don't have the natural proclivity to sit down at a keyboard. Like I I still marvel at you, um, at, at your output, you know, speaking of writing just in general, but it's like, I don't see what the stigma is. Like, why couldn't it be like, you know, put it, put a writer on there. Like I just, I I know that autobiography maybe is a a mantle that a lot of people want, but it just seems like it's semi autobiographical. People love to have the, the dash, you know, singer, actor, author, all that kind of stuff. They, people love a dash and that's what it's for. But so, sorry, I didn't say her name. Michaela Angela Davis is the woman who co-write, co-wrote the meaning of Mariah Carey. And, I think it was some very clever um, hiring by Mimi because um, a lot of the book talks about the difficulty she's had with identity and growing up biracial and not being quite white and not being quite black and experiencing racism, but then also not being black enough for the black community and some of that kind of stuff. And the way that it's written with such like nuance, I think, is you wouldn't have gotten that from a a co-writer who hasn't had that same lived experience. It's very powerful. But the reason I bring up Mimi, besides the fact that I love her um, forever, uh, hashtag Mariah forever, but she talks a lot consistently throughout the audio book, throughout the written book, everything about her fans and about how they're pretty much one of the few reasons like she's still alive and has survived and, you know, they're the ones who've given her this career. And when Glitter bombed, they're the ones who made Glitter, the album, go back to number one in 2019. <laughs> Hashtag justice for Glitter. And um, and it was just us listening to that. I was like, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about how much they love their fans and how much they acknowledge, like, yes, okay, Mariah has like a once in a generation voice, like literally record breaking and like Pavarotti was a fan of her. That tells you a lot in terms of like the specific mechanisms of that voice. Whitney Houston was a fan of her, which says more than Pavarotti. They were super tight, homie. She talks about Whitney, but she's, she's also one of the most talented songwriters and one of the most talented 
producers and somebody who really can study music and has an ear for trends and momentum in a very specific way that's unrivaled. And you could easily just be like, fuck all y'all. Like I'm a once in a gen talent and because she is, but she's also like, yeah, there's a lot of talented people out there, but if I didn't have like the lambs supporting me all the way through, I wouldn't fucking be here. And anyway, it just made me like, as I was listening to that and it was like, after we'd done the first few episodes, the show, and as all these lovely messages were coming in from people and I was just getting blown away by the response, just made me sit back and reflect and be like, so thankful for, um, for everybody who reads and listens, but also people who subscribe, but people who send us nice messages to say, hey, thanks, this show really helped me learn about process or this show really helped me understand xyz thing or like this just wasn't made up for the sake of me being made up it's like you know tied in very specifically to a certain reference point culturally or like contextually so anyway that was a really long ass winded way to say i'm super grateful for the fans so thank you for everybody who's listened and sent us nice messages no extremely thankful i'm basking in maz's reflected glory um uh, with this project um, <laughs> I, um i'm i'm uh i I'm insanely grateful for anyone who supported our one eight minute productions. And I think that once, mm. you know, um, uh, I like dude movies, uh, about dudes in crisis often and pivoting to Josie and now pivoting, um, into, it came from the deep has sort of helped, you know, helped one eight minute production sort of flex what we're about, which is doing things that are different, or if we're going to embrace something, we're going to really like challenge and push the boundaries with it. And I think that it was amazing with Josie and we had such an amazing response to that. And so in our heads, I kind of never had a doubt that we would not have that response. I know that might sound like mm. crazy, but I was like, it just felt like the same energy. Um, it was quick. We kind of knew that it was the right idea, even though it meant a lot of work. Um, but I think we were both. No, that's, a re- that's a really good point for sure. But it's also just, I think, I guess my doubt was maybe the format's quite unusual doing an audio book it's like different. chapter it's unusual. by chapter. It's noise, it's different, it's unusual. Um, but having that like after talk show format is, is you know, it's just different. It's just, yeah. No, anyway. Anyway, and also thank, massive thanks um, to Kimmy who read the trailer for us, like someone who is, you know, I say in like all the posts that she's highly overqualified, but I cannot emphasize that enough. Like she literally... <laughs> <laughs> it's the star of her own TV show, Bureau of Magical Things, hashtag cross promo, um, that dropped on <laughs> Netflix Australia this weekend. Like she couldn't be busier, more overqualified. And she took the time to read the trailer for us so we could put out like a little bit of a sneaky preview. And that was super generous of her and really kind. So, oh, and, and you know, in uh, this is like in the spirit of things that are behind the scenes, we at One Heat Minute Productions, meaning essentially Maria and I, um, <laughs> uh, always talk about the importance of uh, my wife, Sam Howard, my wife. In, uh, in in the ta- as a tastemaker for stuff that we do. You know, mm. she's a great audience member to throw things at, and and you never kind of you kind of get to the point where. Um, you're like, this is going to be really good. I want to see. And she's a great audience because she'll just sort of like absorb it and then give you her very raw and honest feedback about something. And mm. when I, when I showed her the trailer that Kimmy read for us, uh, she, she just stopped at a, a minute and a half and I was waiting for an opinion. She goes, who is that? <laughs> and, and I go, why? <laughs> My first was like, why is the bad? And she's like, 
she's great. Like, who is Can she read more things that you guys do? And it was just a very fun moment. Oh, where, I love that. I didn't uh, know this story. No, that's no, cute. Yeah, yeah, it was very cute. But I was just like, yeah, that's the, you know, we've, we've had some incredible, I mean, Kimmy reading the trailer, people like Amanda writing as Josie theme. Um, we've been extremely lucky, but yeah, lots of, we're just really happy. You know, I think is in a nutshell is we're really happy that people are going to dig this and hopefully that, you know, reading the book again in preparation for every episode, I think the book deserves the reading that we're going to give it. So I'm excited for more people to enjoy it and all those sorts of things. That's very nice. Well, thank you. Shall we start breaking down, um, Chapter two, I guess. Yeah, let's do it. Um, for, is first there anything of, left from chapter one that you wanted to touch on? No, I was so happy. And I'm so, for folks who, who have already listened to that too, if you haven't, go back and listen. Courtney Hancock is the guest. She's amazing. Um, the big thing that I found awesome is, you know, Maria and I grew up idolizing iron men and women as kids who lived on the coast of Australia and participated in surf lifesaving. Um, and it was really awesome to just hear about the community and the culture from an iron woman, you know, all the way from nippers to volunteer lifesaving to the actual job of being a lifesaver and then the athletic uh, pursuits that you can take. And just hearing her talk about like people like Trevor Hendy, um, because they, they were kind of the idols of, you know, you know, early nineties kids slash, you know, late eighties, early nineties, like the whole culture, like it was so pervasive. The bit um, where she talks about the wheat back, wheat uh, bix and how he would have eight, so uh, uh, she would have nine. <laughs> I was just about I love to say, that so much. I, I, and there was a later Trevor Handy ad that I, I wish I was, you know, in that interview to be like, he's like, I go home and I eat 14 Vitabrits. There was a later one where he went to Vitabrits and he's like, I go home and I eat 14 Controversial. And he's like, I go home and I eat 14 Vitabrits. And I remember one time trying to eat 14 Vitabrits <laughs> and it was so dumb. It was really stupid. I felt disgusting. <laughs> And and what you did. and the only way that like micro Blake could eat it, I was just piling on like brown sugar. Like I was just trying to sweeten it to eat it because it was just the worst thing in the universe. But your poor uh, little body would have been shredded oh the my, next day. Oh my god! Oh my god! It was Not enough matchboxes in the world. <laughs> absolutely cooked. Absolutely cooked. Um. So no, that that was really fun. I didn't really have too much to touch on. What I kind of wanted to touch on here is um. I think in chapter two, it's, it's that really, you know, I think the flashbacks in chapter two really are just excellent because they kind of layer in so much of what has happened in Kaya's life. I think we've sort of been dancing around a little bit of it uh, in, in chapter one. And now it's like, we're, we're in the thick of it um, and, and the flashbacks and, and uh, you talk about inflatable rubber boats and IRBs. Mm-hmm. You talk about the book, but really, uh, dirty the, herbs as they're called in the biz. But you it, can't it, say dirty herb in a no, book no. coming across. I was going to say the New South Wales vernacular is they're rubber duckies, mate. They're just rubber mm. ducks, and that's basically what they're called. Basically, the the boats you would see if you go to the beach. I wanted to talk about rubber ducks with you. I want to talk about surf rescue um, because you know I think you do such a great job talking about the fear of gigantic waves and approaching them and especially on a board like a, and, and not necessarily a surfboard, which you can duck dive, but a big board, a, a big board or a ski where it's just hell. And you know that as you're approaching big surf, you're about to get annihilated. And I think talking about that sinking feeling in your stomach and, you know, some of those real visceral images oh. that get drawn up in the book, um, it just, you know, it draws me back to like any time I've ever had to compete it, or any time I've even just on surf rescue days been riding in a rubber ducky and, and you know, uh, and I can tell you a story. There was a, there's an absolute 
he's one of the loveliest men ever. And I won't say his surname, but I will say his first name, Craig, who is a rubber ducky driver at Kilkessler Club, which is my there, local Why circle. is every dirty herb driver called Craig? Oh Craig <laughs> was a fucking lunatic. Okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. Most IRB <laughs> drivers are. It's like uh, all of the adrenaline of surf sports, but with a motor. And you're like, ah, of that combination is for the best. Absolutely ludicrous size surf, probably similar to the surf that you're describing. I was one of the only guys who was stupid enough to like be his, um, be his passenger um, uh, to support him as a as an IRB guy. I can't even remember what it was victim. called. You you say passenger, I say victim. But yeah. <laughs> you know, tomato, I remember, tomato. <laughs> I remember one day. I remember one day in this epic swell, one of us is meant to be looking out out to sea to be checking the waves. And one of us is meant to be looking at the shore. And as the main passenger, I'm meant to be looking at shore because I, I have a, I have um, uh, like the sash like over the me. Yeah. I, I've got a walkie talkie sash and I've got my, oh, sorry, walkie talkie belt on and I've got my sash on to, to dive out in case anyone needs to be rescued with, with the boy, like my own boy around me. It's sort of the Baywatchy boy, but like in Oz, it's like a, it's a bendy one that you wrap around people mm. and throw around. Anyway, I'm meant to be looking at shore, which I'm doing. And the driver who is driving, Craig is meant to be looking at the waves that are approaching us. And I remember I'm looking out, I'm looking out, I'm looking out, looking out. And it felt like we were just like getting it, like it was getting a bit rough. And usually it's like, he's steering, like he's actually looking. And I turn around and Craig's looking at the shore and I go, Oh no. And I look back out to the ocean. I stare out to the ocean and there is just absolute, this monster set rolling through. And I'm going, and I like Craig. And he turns around and he goes, Oh, that was his response. Oh, and he just charged us. And I, as, as a rubber duck passenger, <laughs> what you're meant to do is you're meant to like, you're meant to brace. sort of sh- brace and shoulder charge essentially the nose of the duck to make sure that you punch through waves, especially if a wave is crashing over you, you can help not get flipped completely over, over the top of each other, like vertically flipped backwards. Cause then that sucks and you got to flip the motor and get it back into mm. shore and all that sort of rubbish. Motor anyway, gets flooded. It's a fucking disaster. It's a disaster. It's not the funnest thing in the world. Anyway, so I literally basically take my feet out of the straps that you have in the front of the boat and like oh. like pounce on the front, still holding oh. the, the, the strap at the front, like this oh. rope that's right at the front. And I pounce as we hit this monster wave. And because I took my feet out of the straps to make sure that all my weight hit it at the right time so that we would go through the weight, we got through the wave, but what happened is I flew in the air. <laughs> That's why the straps are there in the first place. I flew in the air and went completely <laughs> vertical, but I kept holding the rope for dear life because it was so big, the waves. And I literally went up in the air and went straight up in the air and then came back down on the duck, smashed into the duck, got dragged alongside it, pulled myself back in. And then, you know, we sort of rode out there for a little bit and I just was like completely nailed and we went back into shore. And he's like, oh yeah, just have like a rest. Like we, we, they let one of our other teams go out for like a, a few minutes. And, and I went back in and I was just like, went into the showers in the surf club. And I was standing there crying. Right. And I was just <laughs> like, I don't want to go back. And then like two minutes later, I got a call like Craig's like, well, we got to go. It's our shift again. I'm like, oh, okay. And I just like wiped the tears from my face and just went showing it. I went back out with that lunatic again. Um, so yeah, it's good times. Uh, rubber ducks Honestly, and, and the fear is so good. Some of the worst wipeouts I've ever seen in my life have been on 
IRBs for mm. sure. And we'll have dirty a guest herbs. who's going to pop on dirty herbs. Um, we'll have a guest who pops on. Um, I haven't asked her yet, so let's maybe put a question mark on that. But dirty guest, guest question we'll- mark. <laughs> um, she is a multiple-time world champion IRB competitor. Her name's Kate Zerny, and she's also um, a surf photographer. She's taken some of the best wipeout photos and we met because she was from her perch as a driver because <laughs> she calls the wipeouts is that what we're going to well, say about kate no i think that i think the reason she's so incredible like she's an incredible action photographer is the word i would use because not just surf sports or different kind of like you fucking insert anything that moves and i feel like that's where her work really shines but um, I feel like the reason her action photography is so incredible is because it's informed by her lived experience, like being out there and being able to anticipate like, well, this will be a sick shot as somebody comes down the lip before they disappear under the wave, sure. never to be seen again. <laughs> but the way we met is because she was a photographer at the newspaper that I worked at. She was the staff photographer and we were also at the same surf club um coming up so it was this convergence of interest so we would end up if I ever got on a stakeout with Kate it was fucking sick because like (laughs) you know it was just it was just like she's a mate you know she's someone I've been friends with for ages and she's read all the books she was one of the very first people to read who's afraid back when I used to print out the manuscript um physical copies late at night when I was on police rounds (laughs) on the work printer because I I was paranoid about being hacked I still have one (laughs) I know Oh God, fuck. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm glad you connected with that stuff, with the wave stuff. It's like very hard to sort of explain the horror of that. And I think I mentioned it um, in the chat with Courtney about how like when I have nightmares now as an adult, they're not nightmares about my very real problems of which there are many. Um, they're often about, they're actually, they're always about surf stuff. Like me getting to a carnival late oh. or me having to see the surf and it being- Getting to a carnival late. I know seriously because I I can hear the marshal calling my event and I'm like fucking fanging it down there and like chucking on a goddamn cap and like it's all tied into like specific things like this one time at state titles I got hit in the side of the face which is why sometimes say people say to me oh you have a really high dimple and I'm like it's not a dimple it's a fucking scar on my face but it's just sort of like under my eye up on my cheek and it's because fucking idiot who shall remain unnameless was not the best on the craft ate shit in the warm in the cool down after an event stacked it off her board and her board went flying into my face hit me and knocked me out and it was in between Jesus. the semi-final and the state final and we needed to compete we needed to be in the top three of the state final so end up on the podium to qualify for the australian titles and thank fuck, like what happened happened because, um, so anyway, point is I got knocked on the side of the face. I was knocked unconscious in the cool down and woke up and there was like blood all in the water and my friend was holding my head up. And I was like, oh fuck. And they're like, oh, she's got, oh, I'm so sorry. And then my other friend's like, shut up. And like put me on the board, pushed me back in. And our final was being called. So you could hear the marshal calling it. Now they won't let you race if you've had a head injury or like a pissing blood from the face. So and if I didn't race, we wouldn't qualify. So strange. So, so strange that they won't <laughs> let you if your blood is pissing out of your face in the ocean. I remember this is at Corumban Beach too. That's why I remember it so viscerally. But um, you know what's I, so fun? All the words we get to say on this show. Like I'm having such a fun time. You just said Corumban. I'm like fucking Corumban. 
Karaman had a fucking. People are gonna think we're making. We're gonna we're gonna think that we're making up words. <laughs> oh, you wait, you wait. When we get into the like later chapters, and some of this stuff gets really specific, like you know they're doing paddlebacks off Burley and shit. Anyway, so we wipe the blood off my face um, and put a cold water bottle to it to try and stop the bleeding. You know how like anytime blood gets in water, it always looks way worse than it is. So we do that. Put ice on uh, like a cold water bottle on my face, and then we're like, what are we going to do? We're going to have to can't like pull out. And I was like, fuck no. Like we have to, like, I have to race in this. It was board rescue event. Otherwise we can't potentially qualify for Aussies. So we duct taped my face shut. And then, um, I took my hair out and put it in plaits, <laughs> duct tape. like intense <laughs> and duct tape fixes anything. Everything. So as we learned from the Marshall, <laughs> duct tape fixes anything. So I know you hate that movie. That's why I said it. Um, I know so, you <laughs> put my hair in intense plaits down the side of my face. So you couldn't see half of my face. And then I put a towel over my head as if I was like Rocky getting psyched up to get into the zone. So they couldn't see the fact that half of my face was like piss and blood duct taped and hidden behind plaits. Now, by the time the race starts, it's too late for them to disqualify you for an injury like that. So it's not what's like this, I was making I mean, it what's obvious. the double jeopardy statute of limitations on this? Like is someone <laughs> from the Australian Surf Championship is going to listen to this show and nah. like take away a title? Is, is that, that can that well, happen? So we got, I think we won second place at the state titles, which is great. But because then we qualified for Aussies, we ended up winning the Australian championship. And if go. I hadn't duct taped my manky face shut, we wouldn't have made it. So it listen, was super worth it. it but this- ma- Listen, mail at oneheatminute.com if you're from the Australian <laughs> Championships. We are going to read out any correspondence no. on this show if it comes Don't through. You do- <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> That's so cruel. Oh, my no, God. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the kind, there's so many stories like that, like so many things that are just, you know, hectic and even like little sayings, like as we start to meet some of the coaches um, or Kaya's main coach, I guess, in this chapter, BB, BB. Brenton Booth, yeah. BB, um, who he's sort of like an amalgamation of several coaches I had. Um, some of them I really fucking didn't like, but two of mm. them in particular, Courtney and I talked about on uh, the last episode and that was... Dennis Cottrell and Pat O'Keefe. Now, Dennis Cottrell is considered maybe Australia's greatest swim coach. Like, I mean, that's always open for, you know, argument, but, you know, had trained people like Grant Hackett and so on Um, and like heaps of others, but like, I can't fucking be bothered, like naming all, look it up. You know what I mean? Google his name. You'll see some answers. Like I'm not your Wikipedia Um, and Pat O'Keefe. And they used to say like weird shit, like, you know, what are you waiting to paint a sunset? And like, you'd be like, you'd get in trouble. And so you'd go off and do it. And then five minutes later, you'd be thinking about someone saying to you, waiting to pay the sunset. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like all these like <laughs> strange little coach That's colloquialisms. Good. I love it's that. Good shit. It's good I shit. I can't that. remember who said that, but it was like, it's something that always stuck with me. So when I was like working it into it's this, it's a great, capsule, it's a great, you? it's a great word picture. What are you doing? Waiting it to is. paint a sunset. Wait, so you waiting to pay the sunset? <laughs> Fucking get going. <laughs> but what's great about those coaches like is they never, they never like drag you so bad with like swears. They just like, they, they, they use metaphors, oh. which are, which is confusing. Pat, I learnt words from Pat that I had <laughs> never like heard before. my uh, genuinely, because he used to train, uh, he had this weird 
intersection of careers where he used to train jockeys and boxers before he transitioned into a surf coach. I know it's bizarre. So, and, um, you, so there's two things you know about him straight away. If you're coaching, if you're a jockey coach, you are a punt. I hundred percent loves a punt. No question. But if you're a jockey coach, you're ruthless. So you like getting up at the crack of dawn. You're ruthless. You, their yard work is everything. And also you don't mind watching people torture and starve themselves to hit weight. Therefore, Which obviously is not dissimilar to a boxing coach. Not as exactly make weight too. make weight road work, the, those toughness and that, and that being ruthless also boxing coaches and people around boxing. Funnily enough, I may know a thing or two, a thing about a thing or two about it. They sometimes uh, attract some very interesting characters who also may enjoy punting, funnily enough. Isn't that fun? Oh, and speaking of interesting characters, um, there was one thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about in the first episode, and it just jumped into my memory, which is you mention in chapter one that Kyra is driving along to swim training and listening to her to a Angus and Julia Stone track. The track is not mentioned. And I asked you um, uh, off air around the time that you're going to interview Courtney, what that song was. Can you tell me now on air to make sure that we have it for listeners? What is yes. the song that is in your head on her radio as she's driving to swim? So this is based on what I used to do when I was getting up and driving to swimming at fucking four, whatever in the morning. And, you know, sometimes still crying on my way there, but I would need to listen to calming, soothing music to like sort of de-stress myself. So Angus and Julia Stone is perfect for that. It's also something that's geographically pretty relevant to the area. Angus and Julia Stone have like a big sort of like anklet foot in the market on the Gold Coast. And so the song is Mango Tree, which is a deep cut. It's off. I don't want to say their first album, but maybe their like third EP. But it's like, I wish I had a ma- Actually, you know what? I'm not even going to sing it. You play a little clip of it here. <laughs> For the love of God. Through my eyes, I can see A shooting star Weaving its way across the sea um, but music features, well, this will pop up more, but, you know, Mango Tree in particular, but there's a bunch of other Angus and Julia Stone songs. They all feature uh, on a playlist that I made. I made playlists. I make playlists for every single one of my books, um, which people know, I think, maybe more with Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid 2 um, because they're very Every book I have mentions bands, mentions songs, might even mention specific lyrics um, within the limitations of me not having to pay copyright license for those lyrics <laughs> um, because there's like X amount you can use or whatever. So I make playlists with all those songs. That and are, and I think that's such an interesting, can I, can I just say that's, we're definitely going to link to that in the description of the upcoming shows. I just wanted to give that a quick shout out. Cause I think it's a great opportunity for folk. I know that people are sometimes starved of like a cool playlist, but I, I just want to say that that is actually something that people who aren't as familiar with writing don't know is like in your head, you might go, Oh, I'm, I want to, I want to make, I want to mention a character singing a tune and it happens in movies and there are fun stories about like they, someone can't get the licensing 
Um, and one of my favorite stories about that is actually a, it's Tony Martin who's a comedian who has a podcast himself. Tony Martin, he made a film called Bad Eggs and it stars Bob Franklin and Mick Malloy. And in, in Bob Franklin's route, it's like, he's like, we're like that two cops after that show. He's always saying, we like them two cops off that show, you know? And they go, chicka chow. And he's, he's doing a fake version of a song because he can't say the lyrics and they can't play the music. And it's just funny that when you're writing, obviously you don't have the luxury of like, or even a podcast right now where we can play the music a little bit and, and have that yeah. sort of reference and mention. If you write the lyrics, you are up for paying for the licensing fee to do so. Is that pretty much like how it works? Well, so also um, the in the Simpsons episode that had um, Michael Jackson, let's not get into that, um, voicing a character yes. because the happy birthday song was under copyright for 100 years. So you could never use the happy birthday song in media without paying for it. And they would never, basically never, ever give the license to it. Kind of like Prince, he would also never give the license to things, to his own music. And what's so sad is that after he died, the first thing that has a Prince song in it is fucking Kingsman, uh, Kingsman, the Golden Circle, which <laughs> I really love that first movie. But the sequel is like, you know, it's it's Garbage. like a, it's, it's not great. Um, but with that Some good Elson John scenes though. Oh, Elton John going full <laughs> diva ham is absolute, beating a person to death while singing Crocodile Rock is like something I never knew I needed. But, really strong. Um, in The Simpsons, they make that song, Lisa, it's, it's your, your birthday. birthday. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Lisa. And it's to get around the copyright. So in books and stuff, um, you can mention the band name. You can mention the song. You can mention, um, you can have a character saying the lyrics but usually where it starts to get litigious is if, for instance, you are opening a chapter of the book and lots of books do this, but you are, oh, this is how you like, if, whenever I see a book that opens a chapter with a quote up top, I'm like, they got money. <laughs> a large, you got money. He got money. Get it all for him. Because you have to clear all those quotes in the same way uh, in a movie. If you're playing a song, it's not just the money, you have to get permission from the artists. And so you'll hear a lot of stories sometimes. Olivia Wilde was talking about it with uh, Booksmart, where she will write a personal letter to the, like, mm. the songwriter or the musician asking them, please give me permission to use your song. They still have to pay for it. But it's like you really, it really becomes this big contentious, like you've got to beg for it kind of thing. And, anyway, fascinating and stuff. Yeah, really fascinating. And also like any art that you're creating like that as well. Um, uh, it's one of the things why movie uh, movie editors who work with directors all the time sometimes use the scores from the director's previous movies as the temp yes. score while they're editing because the fear is if you get too attached to a song and you're cutting to a song and then the artist says, uh-uh. I don't like no, you. It's gone. <laughs> I hate your movie. Well, there's, it's, it's, there's it's also really, several it, bands whose entire career function is they make movie music, mm -hmm. scoreless, like scoreless, sorry, lyricless movie music. And the idea is it, it we like, there's a particular band I'm thinking of um, where their song is always the holding music and a trailer. And if they haven't gotten clearance for whatever song they want, then they're like, fuck it, we're just going ahead with it. And it's always like a type of like sort of epic metal kind of thing. And they have made entire careers out of that. But what's 
also really interesting is like out of necessity breeds ingenuity. Is that how that saying goes? I don't know. You know, the one where it's like, Necessity is the mother of invention. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So the Twilight soundtrack. I I really want you to read out famous quotes because you'll just mazify them and then we don't need to get clearance (laughs) for them because you made them up. And they're actually kind of right, but they're also wrong. So we're never going to find out what the actual thing is. So rude. Um, the Twilight soundtracks, <laughs> which are considered some of the best of the past 50 years of filmmaking. They're considered like, say what you will of the movies. They're not widely received. Yeah, that, that, as like that, something that we look, love. Can, can we but just, what's the soundtracks? What's the second Twilight movie called again? Uh, Twilight New Me- Are you about to say the Licky Lee song? Because that is like the moment. There's a possibility. Stop. When she's for a moment. I can't chair. remember if it's the second or the third one. Oh, but there is an... Am- stop. We can cut... We can stop singing. I can cut the music in. Actually, no, keep singing. Um, no, I was just going to say there is an amazing <laughs> track on there from Bon Iver and St. Vincent called Roslyn. Yes. And yes. it's almost and nowhere else. Eclipse. It's there's almost yeah. nowhere else, and it's like one of the best tracks. And it, it, it well, was written for the soundtrack. Ri- written for the soundtrack. And by that time, they had money. He got money. Yeah. But for the first and second film, they had low budgets, and so the way they put the score together, everyone's like, "Oh man, this song selection's so cool." It's like a lot of indie bands, a lot of alt bands. Yes, it is, and that's like, you know, a really well-crafted and curated soundtrack, but it's also because they couldn't afford music from name bands. And so out of that, like, necessity to populate the film with a very specific aesthetic, and it ties into the the director of the first movie, Catherine Hardwick, has a lot of ties to, like, the Riot Girl movement and rock bands and alt bands and stuff like that. But it created, like, a palette, like a taste palette for how the rest of the films would sound. And to the point where the Twilight soundtracks were event soundtracks. Yeah. When those movies came out, like a lot of people didn't even see the movies. Like, oh shit, the new Twilight soundtracks drop. <laughs> I'll never forget when Sia got announced on the soundtrack for the fourth one. So Breaking Dawn Part 1. It got announced that Sia's song is going to be the big wedding song in Twilight from Breaking Dawn Part 1. She quote tweeted it saying, I got money, I'm rich, <laughs> and like with three C's and like H and stuff. And it was so funny because it was um, just sort of off the back end of Twilight. Like, so this is before Chandelier, before Titanium. This is like Sia was just about to move over to the US long before all that stuff. And I remember interviewing her maybe like a few months after that and being like, I just got to say your tweet when you got announces on the Twilight soundtrack, like everyone wants to be classy and sing a songwriter, whatever. And she was like, I got the residuals, baby. I betcha. And you know, uh, so hard. it's so good. It's funny what really resonates from certain like, um, like pop culture artifacts, because I think, you know, I can definitely listen to a Twilight soundtrack. You'd probably never catch me dead watching, maybe except for the first one, because I really like Catherine Hardwick's direction of the first one. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't catch me dead watching the others. Um, but but the OC soundtracks, I have that relationship oh. with those. Absolute bangers. Oh. So many wonderful bands, Modest Mouth, Death Cab for Cutie. You were talking about bands that make money purely for like uh, cinematic sounds. There's a really great band called The yes. Album Leaf that are a part of the, yes. uh, those uh, the, those soundtracks as well. Like literally, if you just go through them, 
incredible but interpol you know the killers like you can just bang 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 bang, bang. It's, they are they're just phenomenal indie la of that very specific moment um sort veronica of veronica mars was also a great one of those two yeah. which is veronica mars was the same era as the oc and so there's a lot of crossover there in the kind of music but it was also that california vibe so yes. veronica mars had a lot of ties to spoon uh, and they would often, and Spoon and the Dandy Warhols. Dandy Warhols obviously is like the the theme song for Veronica Mars, but yeah. they would have bands pop up in there a lot, and it became like intrinsically linked to the essence of those stories. And that's why I make the playlist for each of the books because if you click, and it doesn't necessarily like I have very broad music taste, guys. It's not just Mariah Carey. Shocking, I know, <laughs> but there is a certain aesthetic to each novel and like even who's afraid which is always like a little bit more of a the who's afraid books i guess would sort of skirt that edge of hip-hop and punk like that's sort of where it fits wailing woman is very specific a lot of like specific australian music because it's set in a very specific australian um, demographic uh the witch who courted death is like a lot of like you know not Yonzi, but like witchy Yonzi, <laughs> a lot of St. Vincent and stuff like that. Um, a lot of like, um, band, because it's, it's a queer book, you know, all the characters are gay. It was like a lot of gay singer songwriters and a lot of like gender non-binary singer songwriters to try and reflect that specific story. And with it came from the deep, it's a lot of coastal music and yeah. that includes like, you know, coastal bands and coastal sounds, but that can mean anything from it's like Stage it's like right and Angus and Julia Stone to Hoodoo Gurus and the Cars. Yeah, it's it's that it's kind of that alternative uh, soulful rock that kind of really has like a coastal vibe to it. It's like you know, um, uh, you know, something about something about the surf and everyone sort of being moderately chilled out um, and also ready to get naked as one of the characters does, um, which was really <laughs> getting naked and skating down the road, which is deeply relatable. If you live in a surf community, oh. you definitely know oh, people have done that. That actually so, happened. There's, uh, there's, a, there's uh, like hey, a bunch hey, of things. Hey. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. That's That was definitely not something I doubted. Um, but no, it's. Uh, um, I was just chuckling because Maria, I can attest, does have a very eclectic musical taste and uh, uh, will often call call me because she's like the only person except for me who follows my discover weekly playlist on Spotify and says, yes. Hey, <laughs> Hey, can you fucking stop listening to the national next week? Because oh, this, dude. this discover weekly is too just much. too national heavy. This, and I have too to, much. I have to try and uh, broaden my horizon. It's so slightly. depressing. This it's great though. Cause I, I love your music taste is like the yin to my yang. Like it really like softens out some of my edges but when taylor swift put out folklore i like called you so fast because i was like oh boy <laughs> one of those on there like one of is on and the national produced like half the songs you're gonna like have soft boy moments <laughs> so um, I, I, I don't actually know if you even like that album or not so <laughs> no i like folklore i like the first few tracks it gets a bit like I, I the later part of the album i'm not a big fan of but like the first four or five tracks on the album like play pretty pretty well together i really dig it now i wanted to go back to kaya's amazing amy moment because yes. i know you're a big fan of gone girl and i love oh some- i love that reference and i was like so curious as to like what what that was pertaining to when you said it in the lead-in i was like it was oh, yeah, Blake, it, it, was ta- it was talking about i think you put it really well which is like um and you know people can have it at, at different work contexts and people can have it but i thought of kaya because it, it was it was actually stemming out of a bit of a like a traumatic moment and a moment where she's the center of unwanted attention 
is yes. learning to wear a mask. And so oh, why yes. I called it a bit of an amazing Amy moment is because if you read, you know, obviously seen the film Gone Girl, or you've read Gillian Flynn's great novel. Um, it's, it's um, which I think Maria's probably got on a destiny here, but it was just like, yeah, she just literally does. And she's holding it up. Oh, wait, I'm going to get a screenshot of this. Hold on one second. And yeah, here's I, one I prepared earlier. Here's one you prepared earlier. Um, oh. So I, I, I found that uh, the process of learning to have a mask to 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 really take to really step back and be insular and 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 sort of retreat inside yourself. And then obviously, you talk about her, you know, for both outward appearances, but probably internal health mental health you know she's going to see a therapist and things like that but i just loved the idea of her and how quickly in the story because time obviously passes so we don't get to be in the sort of storm of the moment you know sorry no, no pun intended because her brother's name is yeah, storm choice of words. um but that that time of her learning a mask i thought was a really interesting thing um and and i guess what i want to talk to you about is like where that sort of came from because i would imagine that that has a lot of roots in being not only a journal but like an entertainment journal and yeah. sort of seeing those examples of people who are in these moments great turbulent moments where they're under the spotlight and watching them not have anything they've got like a you know sometimes it's emotionally or it's calculating and why i said it's amazing amy moment is because um you know there's kind of a couple of characters in that that kind of either let their personal personality out or are pushing it in and you kind of don't know. And yeah, that's what I thought I would ask you about. I love that comparison. I love that through line um, because I love Gillian Flint. She's one of my favorite writers and I love the types of women that she writes. Um, there was a line from Sharp Objects that I think about all the time and it's um, a child weaned on po poison considers cruelty a comfort I think is how it goes I've probably mazzed that up as you would say but I just think she's an incredible writer and she has the kind of versatile career that I find really aspirational like she started as an entertainment reporter who had books and now writes screenplays and uh, produces television all that kind of shit sidebar love her work she's great Woo! Um, as for the mask thing yeah you're 100% right that's essentially where it comes from I always talk about like my greatest fear being Mark Wahlberg's death at the end of Perfect Storm, I left out to die, blah, blah, blah. But my second greatest fear would be being famous because I have been around so many famous people for so long through work, but also even just like through the pop culture convention circuit and friends that you make and just seeing how incredibly hard that is when there's no separation between you and the art, mm -hmm. there's no separation between yourself and the product. And when you become the product, and it's usually specifically happens with actors, happens with singer songwriters too. Um, but that just seems incredibly draining and incredibly scary. And this mask that has to snap into place all the time and people who can put that mask on well and people who can't and sometimes the little cracks of things that you see through that mask and in the context of Kaya going through the the court case and everything and trying to open up that world there's a really uh, difficult skill that is something that is hard to learn in novel story writing and it's patience and being patient enough to sprinkle information throughout a story 
in little morsels so that you're building it's like a color by numbers you're slowly like contributing a color or a shade to each specific square to the point that by the end of the book and as the physical events are coming to a head so too are all the pieces of the characters and the person and the backstory that you're trying to shape I feel like I didn't necessarily do it super well particularly in Who's Afraid um, I was still like a baby author and kind of finding finding my way finding my legs but it's a skill that I feel like I've gotten a lot better finding at your tail this is a merman <laughs> podcast okay no. <laughs> um but it's in the technical term is an info dump and it's yeah. when you dump too much information you see it happen in movies a lot there's a really you know the character like Mr Exposition and Austin Powers <laughs> is like one of my favorite sort of like pop cultural references to that phenomenon but trying to do that with Kaya is like we in you know the prologue we essentially learn nothing about her the prologue is all centric specific to a certain crime right which kicks off like a lot of key events the first chapter is introducing you to who who she is and you have to always be very careful in the first chapter because everything is new the character names are new the world's new um, we're not even getting into like powers and mythical and fantasy stuff yet. But if you were doing that in a first chapter, that's all new too. The rules of the world are new. So you have to be really careful how you tread there. So I was trying to lay the groundwork for some of like who she was, what she does, but also some of the issues she was dealing with. So that by the time we got to chapter two and you learn about what those, where those issues come from and what they actually are, you can see how it's affected her down the line which was sort of like the pivotal point it had the events happen like five to six months ago um per the timeline of the book and that public face is also something that i've seen um very closely and intimately with friends of mine you would have seen it too with your family history mm. of professional athletes who have to snap down a mask and you've got to have a game face or you have to have a face to the media and you have to learn to do that shit real quickly because you're part of you are the brand right the brand. Again, that there's no separation between you and the product so that's where that idea came from but also well it comes up a little bit later in um a, a, another chapter where there's like a media scrum but it is really hard to kind of capture that environment of a media scrum and how that feels if you're leaving a courtroom or a hospital or a police station can i say I somewhere like the gold coast where it's so insular yeah can i say i think you what i love and i think how you described it as like sort of finding your author legs you know learning how to walk um, and, and, and I feel like it came from the deep as you starting to run a bit is there's something really great about being focused on someone doing something like she's going through this road work, this pool swim, this stuff. And then everyone experiences that vacant thinking, like yeah. you, 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 you lose the focus on what you're doing and, um, oh, especially and in a pool, pools suck <laughs> for that pool suck for that. But also like mm. with running as well, um, which which is what I, I find myself doing now way more than even like, and surfing, it does it as well. Your mind just goes to a million different places, but sometimes you want the focus to come back because there is other stressful things that are happening in your life that you don't want to let in. And so you're like, I'm going to go for a run, but I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to listen to a podcast, um, all those sorts of things because you're like, I just, I don't, I don't want the internal noise. I don't need it because that activity is helping. But I think that that's, there's a really great, 
I don't know. It's, it's a very tender balance, I think, for that information dump to work. And I think that the way that it's set up and then the reframing and going through, but sort of her still going and then getting pulled up by the trainer and then other elements coming in and then meeting storm and just those mm. things that are being foggy and sort of just coming back in and penetrating her thoughts while she's being vacant, I think is a really cool thing. And, and I think that, you know, for me, if I had to say like, um, you know, there's a real, really good quality and I don't want to undervalue it now because we're like so early in the book, but I just want to say like, there's a really awesome quality in the opening chapter slash chapters of a book. I don't think you can really do it in a prologue, but like opening chapters of a book that can either hook you in or pique your curiosity um, or like fully, I like I'm going to strangle you I'm your mind. Turn now. you like, on or turn you off. Yeah. Basically. basically. <laughs> and, and so like, I think about it with another one heat minute production, which is like inherent vice. You know, when I saw inherent vice for the first time, it's, you have this amazing scene, which is a massive conversation and information dump where, where um, Shasta Faye Hepworth is talking to doc. So you've got Ka- Catherine Watterson and, and Joaquin Phoenix and they have this conversation and she says, you know, they have it at the end of it. He walks her out to her car. She says, watch your toes. He watches her drive away. And then the music from Cannes Vitamin C comes on and it's like, dun, 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 dun. And this neon title comes up and it says Inherent Vice. And I, and like for me, I watch that movie and I go, I'm fucking so in. I don't care what happens next. Like I'm into this. And I feel like this is the chapter of the book for me that gives me that same feeling, which is like, you know, all of the color, all of the fear, all of that cool stuff, but you're still inside this person's head and you're getting a feeling and you've now completely got your hooks in to me for, for what's coming up next. Well, the thing you say about when you go for a run, you listen to music, right? And like, I physically don't know how I run any kilometers without music. Like <laughs> I have to, yes. I have to, and I have a specific playlist for it. And I like, will have different playlists. Like, you know, I'll have, I have a really aggressive hip hop playlist and then I have it a really like, very specific 60s Motown playlist and those are my two running playlists and I alternate between the two and if I can't listen to music I'm like well I guess I'm never running again then but the thing is with swimming in particular and lap training and that length that you're pushing of like five to seven kilometers in a session right so like a 15 1500 meters which is a was used to be my like worse whenever we got assigned 1500 meters well they just call them 1500s in swim session I'd be like fuck my life because in a 25 meter pool that's I think how many laps is that like 40 something well and it's in a 50 it, meter it's it's four for your four laps for 100 meters times yeah. by 15 yeah well I don't know I 60 don't do laps that, so whatever okay sick. there you go you figure it out anyway um I used to hate those because you could never listen to music. There's no way for anything to distract you from the pain you're feeling. And so as my therapist said, um, I'm very good at disassociating from pain. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, fuck, she's got my number. And I think that stems from swimming because I used to hate it so much and swim training specifically is the only way I could disassociate from my pain was to go into head spaces and think up stories or think up scenarios. And in Kaya's world, she, she doesn't do that. She's not a storyteller like that. And so her empty time and her empty thoughts are filled with what happened. And from a, like, as a, as a, like device, as a mechanism for bringing the readers into her backstory, it's the perfect 
opportunity to do that. And also like with the introduction of Cabby, um, who pops up lots, like she becomes a really important character um, for a lot of reasons that we'll get into later, but her being somebody who can start to introduce the idea of the very tricky politics of interclub rivalries, but also the way she downloads the gossip about, oh, the South Africans are here and the yes. Frenchies are coming or so-and-so is here or like North Telebudra like has, is competitive with Kaya's club, which is like Middle Beach. And for the record, um, this is the thing that I do a lot in all of my books, but in particular with this one, cause like guess who don't sue, but some surf clubs are fake and some are real. So like Telebudra, for instance, is a real surf club. There's no such thing as North Telebudra. There is a main beach surf club. There's no such thing as a middle, middle beach, beach surf club. So it's like mixing and same with, you know, the physical locations of the book. We talk about like Lake Palats being a fictional freshwater lake, but the real life inspiration for that is like humans. So kind of mixing those elements um, with the real world so that it feels authentic when you're reading it. And people who are like familiar with the area, like you, you're like, oh, fuck yeah, like this is like X, Y, Z thing, or I can see myself here at this beach at this time or whatever. But also for people who have never even heard of the Gold Coast or know, know the dynamics of this world, it doesn't ostracize them either. So it's like that constant balance of trying to be like insider, but not excluding anybody, if that makes sense. I do love the idea as we head to the end of this episode, um, this wrap up of chapter two, that I do love that people would read that book and be a big fan and be like, where's Middle Beach Surf Club? <laughs> and someone's like, what? <laughs> like, what? Where, where, I would love that so much because that would totally happen to me in an American, like a fictionalized movie. You know, I just mentioned Inherent Vice and the, it's based off a book by Thomas Pynchon and he called like one of the, one of the beaches there Gordita beach and Gordita beach doesn't mm. exist. It's a fictionalized yes. thing. But some people are like, Oh, it's so-and-so beach. This is the real beach. Um, you can yeah. go to, the Gordita beach of the movie, but I, they I do would, it in Veronica Mars a lot I would, as I would, well. I would, I would totally be that guy that's like, um, <laughs> where's Gordita beach? Like, Get out of here. You fucking do it. Get out of here, kid. Take your Gordita. Um, just before we end this chapter, I just want to mention the, the house that, um, Kaya Craig lives on, which is very specific. Millionaire's on Hedges Avenue. Yeah. Yes, baby. I love that you knew that. Oh, dope. This is so good. You're the best person to do this with. Um, because Hedges Ave is Millionaire's Row. It's the place on the Gold Coast. Now, obviously, like there's Isle of Capri and a few other different joints that are like you can have your mansion. But if you are like in the, the Isle of Capri, club, the Isle of Capri wants tourists. So the difference between Millionaire's Row and the Isle of Capri is if you walk through the Goldie there's a couple of bridges and I don't know them. You can, you can shout them out if you actually know them, but you can walk across bridges or drive shout across bridges. Shout out to my bridges. <laughs> to your bridges. Get that arch, baby. Um, you, can you can walk over and see the Isle of Capri and like people can mm. stare at your wealth and go, yes. oh my God, look at that disgustingly opulent place. Isn't it They amazing? do boat tours. Yeah, like when, like, especially because Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, when they were still together and Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, when they were still together, they all <laughs> rented mansions <laughs> in Isle of Capri. I'm not going down the digression. No, 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 no. We don't touch those. We don't touch either of those subjects. Um, But they all were in mansions on Isle of Capri. So that's like part of the tour now is... um 
you know, you go on the boat tour and it's like this person, this is their mansion. This person went to jail for insider trading. That's their mansion. Brad Pitt stayed here. Like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp stayed there. They had their dogs here. This is where we did the death dog countdown and, you know, that whole thing. So it it is like part, like the same way you do tours of like the Hollywood Hills and stuff. Yes. The Gold Coast version is that, is they chuck you in a, <laughs> in a dinghy with a good paint job and off you go. Whereas Hedges Avenue is still very accessible because it's right on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual place that is Middle Beach, which doesn't have a sign, it's kind of like a locals only thing, is in that along that stretch. It's yes. kind of along the stretch of between, say, like Miami. There's not as much. There's not as much beach access from those roads though. Yes. Once you get yeah, like True. like because because the houses you can't are at the park front there. No, so they sort of but like, everyone you have to tries get there to. By tr- foot. Everyone tries to drive there and go, shit, I can't park here. And then does Austin Powers U-turns out of there. You know, that's that's basically and how. And hits cyclists because there's <laughs> a cyclist path that runs right along Hedges Ave. Hedges Ave, for the most part, is one way. So you can only like go in one direction, which is towards Service Paradise. And you've got to go kind of slow. And they put lots of speed bumps there to discourage um, you know, too fast, too furious, Tokyo drifting and all that shit. Um, but along that stretch is like, you just have endless amount of cyclists and joggers. And like, that's where I used to roller skate was I would park at Miami beach and then I would roll the skate from Miami beach up to Cairo surf club. I'll never forget. Um, where is friend- your, where is your <laughs> dreams video on those roller skates from Miami beach down to main beach? Well, I was roller skating um, and this is like just as I had started roller derby. So I was like maybe a year into into like frequent skating or whatever. And Big so Ellen along. Page energy. Yep, go on. <laughs> My derby name, I wanted it to be Mariah Scary, but you have to register your name with International Roller Derby Registry. And this woman in Nevada had already like taken the name Mariah Scary. So I was spewing. Did you send her a letter that was kind of like the Zodiac letter that just said, fight me (laughs) on it? I'll see you on the streets (laughs) because I don't know who she was, but I'm pretty sure I know my abilities and I could have beaten her and Mariah Carey trivia. That's all I'm saying. Um, So the name I went with was Barack Ohamher. Uh, because it was 2008, uh, it was kind of topical, goodness. and there was a there was a chick called Hillary Clinton, um, who was That's like, good. The, "It's good, it's That's good." That's really she was good, Hillary. In the oh. Logan team, and I was like, "Wow!" Like I didn't realize there was like a big American politics contingent in Logan, but they had the Logan team had all the best names. There was another chick there called Alfred Bitchblock. <laughs> oh, Alfred Bitchblock, <laughs> which was the best name I ever get heard her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> where's she at she was a blocker she was fucking unbelievable she was so good anyway so i was roller skating along here Ave, and this like fancy ass jeep swerves in front of me to the point that if i had not braked like and you know done like the little t-shape you do with your legs to slow down i would have like collided with it the driver's door flings open and it's my mate, uh, Haley Bateup, who is also, she's not an iron woman anymore, but she was famously, and it still is um, one of Australia's greatest iron woman. She sticks her head out and she's like, Maz, what are you doing? Rolling <laughs> skates, you loser. Ah, ha, ha. Gets back in her car and drives off. <laughs> and she just fully blocked the entirety of Hedges uh, and pulled that's across. That's what friends are for. <laughs> and then I just had to like keep roller skating after being, like very publicly heckled. Um, anyway, Hedges Ave 
is a very specific place, very specific mansions, very specific people live there. And so having Kaya live there was something that I wanted to use to show her family's wealth. Her father, um, who pops up later, so we'll talk about him later, but the kind of wealth that he has means that they could have a house on Hedges Ave. And the actual, like, the way I visualized the house in my head was kind of loosely inspired by this friend of mine um, from high school, Brittany Scales, who used to live right at the start of Hedges Ave. I think she had like the second or third house on Hedges Ave. And I used to go around to her house and it was like right on the beach and just be like, oh my fucking God. Like this was just like the richest place I'd ever been in in my life. And it was just so beautiful. And they had this amazing, like they were always like very earthy sort of conscious people. So they had like everything laid out really specifically and just she had this older brother um who Can I just, kind of before like, you get to before you get to scaly's older brother um britney scales britney scales i would i would have called her scaly it legitimately sure. looks like shakira like uh, if, if you knew who she was you'd be like oh that's a terrible comparison well um, I won't, I, I didn't, you know, it's just an Aussie thing to name a nickname. You if weren't saying nickname, she was if, a lizard if, person. No, but if she, if you nickname scale, if you surname scales, I'm calling it scaly, it's happening. Um, but I also like, there was that period where, um, and it's what I like about Kaya's family. There's that period where you can foresee that there's like a very dominant athlete for a time earns a stack of money is definitely from like a lower class or working class family. And at the very peak of their powers, they're smart enough to literally throw all their money mm. into one thing, their favorite thing in the world, which is a beach house and they throw it in, but the family's not like crazy rich. And I just don't think that now in 2020 different to when we were growing up, it was like, you would know of these families who started out and they just like, literally they, ran a small business. They saved their money for years and years. They kind of retired and like bought their one dream thing. Um, and, and in that way, Kaya's dad does the same. Like he kind of buys their one dream thing. And it, but it feels like now in like 2020, you have to be a CEO of a company or truly, an international celebrity truly. or whatever. And, and the occupancy in those houses or in those rows of houses we talked about in one of our first episodes is like, it's like, it's like 3% or 6% a year and 90%, 94% of them are just empty for these people to come buy for their two week holiday a year. And then it's shut down again. Um, Hedges yeah. is a little bit different. It's a lot of residents because people want to be seen there. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit different in that regard, but in, you're hundred percent right. What you said about like Kaya's family, her dad is supposed to be like an Oki archetype, right? Yes. So like Mark Ocalipu, anybody who knows him, but, most professional surfers and most famous surfers don't come from money. They're all working class people. And I don't just mean in Australia. I mean, in Hawaii, everywhere, like Brazil, South mm -hmm. America, especially, they are usually come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or straight up poor. Yep. And then when they hit the pro circuit and depending on how young you hit the pro circuit, whether you get endorsements, whether you get like a long enduring endorsement, you get that money and you hold on to that money. And if you're lucky, you can spin that into other career opportunities. Like for Kaya's dad, for instance, he spins that into like an ongoing mentorship program with a brand, um, which is sort of supposed to be like Quicksilver, but like that idea of you affiliating yourself with that brand for life, regardless of whether you're still in the pro circuit or not. And that kind of like entry point into wealth doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. But hypothetically, you'd say, you know, 
he bought that house like the 2000s, you know, like around that time where it was still possible to enter into a house on on Hedges Ave. And it's just like something that if you were a surfer too, like what would be better than living right on the beach, like right. truly and, right on the beach. And there's 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 nothing better than that. Like, like you know, that, that that's no. the thing. And, and it's but, like a, being a golfer lives on a golf course. You know? like, <laughs> You're like, they, I made it. I've got a mansion right next to one of the best golf courses in the country. You literally have made it. And like that spot in Surface Paradise, it's named Surface Paradise for a reason. It's like yes. that 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 spot. It would be magic. And so, but yeah. yeah, no, there was just something really like you know that you see and you know, especially sort of like nine, late nineties into two thousands, you would see it happen with mm-hmm. skaters. You know, you grow up with like low yes. socioeconomic, dirty skaters yes. and they get huge international contracts, like come on the scene. Even the bra sponsors. boys, the yeah. fact that they were all able to make livable wa- beyond livable wages. Yeah. Um, and all of them were sort of and like on the outskirts. Russell cried. <laughs> Narrate them. <laughs> But the last thing I'll say about that house, um, Brittany's house, which is always like the place that we always wanted to hang out at, you know, Brittany's place, like if her parents went out of town, we would always be there because it was just this amazing house. I think it was like two or three stories, um, but it was just incredible. But her older brother, who is, shares a lot of like similar traits to Storm, not in a personality perspective, but just because surfy guys of that age on the Gold Coast are a very like distinct breed. But you would just, if you could. Never wearing a shirt. Never wearing a shirt. (laughs) Bodies to the knee always. But if the surf was good, you could see that it was good from their house. And so he would have like mates come over or he'd be hanging out with people and they'd stick their head out, see the surf was good. Just grab boards off the wall and then bring it out onto the beach. And it just becomes part of the lifestyle and part of the culture. And so having spent like a lot of... um, I want to say like having a lot of great memories attached to like Brittany's house and the times hanging out there, that was like very much informed the sort of idea or the vibe that I was trying to capture with Kaya's house and the kind of house that Ken Craig, her dad, Casey would have and how Storm and his world would interact with. I totally just forgot that you meet one of his um, late night stands (laughs) (laughs) coming out of the house. I was just like, as I was saying, you said something earlier about shitbag brother. And I was just like, it just gave me a flashback to um, Ashanti, to Ice. (laughs) (laughs) And and she's been there for a third time. So they may be getting engaged. Um, this has been a blast talking chapter two of this book with you. Um, we, we oh, so fun. I love talking it, about this. This is, uh, this is good fun. I'm looking forward to the next coming chapters. I'm looking forward to some of our special guests that we're going to have coming in, popping in. Um, some of them will be surprises, which is really awesome. Um, some good gold coast color. Um, and, uh, and if we can get, uh, who was your friend? Who was the, uh, action photographer and dirty herb driver? Kate Zerny. Kate Zerny. Dirty herb. Dirty I'll get herb. her on here, mate. She'll be, she's going to be mate. such good crap. I really want to, well. I really want to talk. I, I, I think I have a kinship with Kate Zerny and anyone named Craig who drives like a lunatic in an IRB. <laughs> it came from the deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis. Read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Hit Minute Productions. 
If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights too, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermaids.